Welcome to episode 1017 of Effectively Wild, the baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello, Jeff. Hi. Couldn't help but notice that the day after we did our Dodgers and Padres preview, you did a post on the Dodgers and a post on the Padres. Was that coincidence? Uh... Yes and no. So talking about the two teams obviously gets them sort of locked at least into your subconscious. I've wanted to write about Brock Stewart almost all offseason long just because he's very interesting and I love people who have insane minor league stats. Go James Mm -hmm. Hoyt. Uh, (laughs) So Stewart has been in my mind for a while. I think the podcast kind of gave me a reason. And also it's February. There is nothing. There's nothing. (laughs) Chris Carter signed, but I don't care. Brock yeah. Stewart's more interesting. And as for the Padres, I think, yeah, it was talking to Dennis Lind that got me looking at the Padres depth chart and looking at the Padres depth chart got me thinking about, okay, who are the people on the team who aren't awful and dreadfully boring? Oh, look at these relievers. And I've seen so many tweets over the last several months that would, I think a lot of them would come from like Buster Olney talking about how so many teams would call the Padres about Ryan Buchter or Brad Hand. And I'd be like, okay, whatever. Teams are looking for mediocre lefties. No, no, they're actually really good lefties. And Brad <laughs> Hand in particular is really interesting. And so looking at Brad Hand and noticing this guy kind of has a lot in common with Andrew Miller, that's really interesting. So then that got me thinking about a post. Again, it's February, not much to write, but it's maybe not additionally a coincidence that this podcast right now is interrupting some research I'm doing on Austin Hedges, who, by the way, uh-huh. is another potential breakout player. So uh, Austin Hedges is coming next. These podcasts are serving a dual purpose for me as an author. <laughs> Good. I'm glad we're saving you some time. <laughs> and people think the it's February thing is going to change next week when pitchers and catchers report, but <laughs> not not really. No, <laughs> not at no, all. No, not at all. Pitchers and catchers <laughs> they report nothing. And then there are some stories about who's fat and who's not. And that's about it for another month. <laughs> some guys get hurt and you can write about guys getting hurt. But otherwise, it doesn't really help a whole yeah. lot when people are in camp. So... No, I think it's nice for one day when you see them there, but that's about it. The neat thing about spring training getting closer for us is that, at least on Fangraphs, we're going to have the Zips projections folded into the Steamer projections, which is such a dorky thing to say out loud. But I at least (laughs) it's when I feel most comfortable with the projections. It's when we can talk about them and as their most concrete. Pakoda just came out yesterday or the day before, but like spring training for analysts serves. I think maybe one purpose where we basically look at pitchers who are either throwing harder or softer and say, okay, that's the thing now that we're going to write about. But then here's the problem with that. Last year, I remember I wrote a post about Doug Fister because his velocity was up in spring training. I was like, oh, what a good bounce back candidate. Nope. Velocity got worse. Orioles (laughs) released. The Orioles released decent starting pitcher Miguel Gonzalez and in his starts in spring training his velocity was way down and I wrote about that being like Miguel Gonzalez looks like the Orioles know something nope his fastball was fine (laughs) and then with the White Sox who had horrible defensive catchers in a horrible pitcher's ballpark he had an ERA under four so spring training it's not only useless 
for analysts, it's almost worse than useless because it is deceptive and I hate it. I have learned one thing, one thing from spring training ever, and that was the year Michael Saunders started hitting to the opposite field. And I was like, okay, that could be a thing. And then he learned that and he stopped being a terrible baseball player. But that was like seven years ago. And since then, realistically, it should just always be hands off. Yeah, you can find things out about maybe playing time or who's where on the depth chart perhaps at some point in spring training. And and there has been some recent research that's shown that spring training stats do matter if you look at the right stats and you caveat it a lot and they, they only matter a little bit, but you know you can't totally write it off. But for the most part, yeah, probably easier to be misled than led in the right direction. Yep. So we're doing emails. Just quickly, can we talk about Ryan Rayburn for a second? Because you uh, wrote about Ryan Rayburn. Yeah, I would love to. Although, why don't we? Uh, why don't we hold that off until the uh, the research part of this? The, uh, ah, okay. Uh, that's going to be related. Oh, good. All right, sure. Okay, so let's do some emails. Let's start with, well, Justin responded to the Dodgers preview. He said, having just listened to the Dodgers preview episode, I was marveling yet again at the injury risks carried in their revolving door rotation. Like everyone else, I've been intrigued and impressed at their willingness to sign the walking wounded and see who shows up for work and who doesn't. One thing I suddenly remembered that I had totally forgotten and that I hadn't heard brought up in a year was the fact that they totally signed Hisashi Iwakuma and then rejected him for health concerns. Firstly, they signed all sorts of guys with huge injury risks. Secondly, after being sent back to Seattle, Iwakuma made 33 starts, the greatest number one can make in a regular five-man setup. So we didn't talk about that the other day, but that's another data point, I guess, to show that teams don't exactly know what they're doing injury-wise and that they can rule out a guy for injury concerns and then he can be the one guy who doesn't have injuries. Yeah, and I, Iwakuma did not have the greatest year that he's had no. in his career, but he was the only uh, qualified Mariners pitcher, which is mm-hmm. a, that's an odd threshold to set, but the Dodgers had only one qualified pitcher and that was Kenta Maeda, who of course signed and the at least the consensus within the industry is that his his medicals are this is a quote but it's not a direct quote but basically a quote paraphrasing the baseball industry his medicals are the worst that people have ever seen like Kenta Maeda <laughs> according to people who have looked at his physicals his arm is basically hanging on by a thread it's why he signed such an odd like incentive based multi-year contract with the Dodgers he was the only Dodgers pitcher last year to clear 150 innings he actually cleared 175 Iwakuma with the Mariners threw 199 innings no one else threw more than 153 point one, I should not have used that stat as a cutoff, <laughs> but you uh, you have an interesting case where the maybe maybe the two worst medicals the Dodgers looked at last year were the two guys who wound up pitching the most. You can look at the Orioles, where of course they're known for their rigorous physicals, and then they wound up renegotiating the contract with Giovanni Gallardo, but still signing him to a multi-year deal, and then he kind of sucked and broke down, so he passed the physical in a sense, but still got hurt. And I think that I've never looked at a player's medicals. And even if I did, guess what? I wouldn't know what I'm looking at (laughs) because I'm not a doctor. Uh, And the people who do look at these things are doctors. But I think maybe people have a misunderstanding or poor understanding that so much of that stuff is guesswork. Guess trying to figure out which arm is actually going to break in the season ahead. That's you might have like a five or 10% advantage in 
knowledge from looking at it, but it's it's a roll of the dice, and mm-hmm. there is no better demonstration than the Dodgers pitching staff. Yeah. All right. Eric from Plainview says, I view the world through a reductionist point of view, and so that is how I view baseball too. That is to say, in explaining nature, a reductionist view would state that nature is made of matter, which is made of compounds, which are made of elements, which are composed of atoms, then nucleons, then quarks, and so forth and so on. Baseball, by way of analogy, is determined by runs, which are composed of series of hits, which are made up of swings, then muscle contractions, then neural pathways that react to pitches, and so forth and so on. Each of these events, in both the realms of science and baseball, can be measured, and such measurements are increasingly becoming more precise. Examples include statcast data, heart rate monitors, whatever the pirates are having their players do. This trend of measuring everything reflects the reductionist rationality, but do you see a point where the reduction stops? In other words, for hitting, is measuring bat speed and swing path enough to measure a hitter's performance? Or should we go further and measure the physics of their muscle contractions or measure the neural networks in the brain? How far down the reductionist pipeline should baseball analysts or writers strive to go? Uh, Well, I think there's a difference between baseball analysts slash writers and baseball teams where I think if you are a a scout or a a team, you want to know as much as you possibly can. Scientific researchers would want to know as much as they possibly can to try to figure out where a hitter's skill is actually coming from and whether that means investigating their muscles or investigating the way their brains work even. I mean, we know there's neural scouting that's taking place within the industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is something that is not going to go away. It's fascinating, if nothing else. And if you get past the, I don't know, certain privacy concerns or whatnot, I think that it's very interesting to try to figure out what actually makes a good hitter or an adaptive hitter versus someone who is, I don't know, Ken Harvey, who I don't know why I brought him up, but he was bad, kind of, and he never got better. But if you are an analyst or a writer, I think that the public interest stops at the limits of actual on-field baseball, where people will be interested in knowing who has the fastest bat or who has the uh, the highest or the lowest exit velocity, because these are known and applicable baseball skills. And these are things that you just know about. Even when you're in middle school, you know what bat speed is and you know how much it matters. But if you start talking about someone who, I don't know, has synapses that fire faster than somebody else, I don't think people would have a great public interest in in reading that because it feels like it's far removed from a baseball skill. And I think mostly people just want to know about actual on-field baseball skills because if you go beyond that then it feels less like a sports article which people like and more like a scientific article which far fewer people like which is not Mm -hmm. to say that they aren't valid but we already kind of feel like science writers with all the analysis that we do in baseball and the further removed you get from the game itself i think the the more you lose the collective interest yeah i think you and i would still be interested like you know people have written alex spear wrote about mookie betts and neuroscouting and how he graded out really well based on whatever tests the red sox were doing and that sort of thing is interesting because if a player is getting sort of bumped up or bumped down based on how his brain works before he's even proved that he can play. That's interesting to me. I would Mm want to know about that. And I don't know that most people would want to know about that, but, but I would, I think I'd be, I don't know if you need to go down to a player's 
quarks level, but (laughs) (laughs) I think you could definitely go down to like their muscle fibers and their neurons, how quickly they fire and how does that affect reaction time and pitch recognition or their genetic code? What does that say about their likelihood of getting injured or, or aging well? So I think you could go pretty far along the reductionist path if you were a team or if you were a dorky writer like us, but mm-hmm. if you are doing a newspaper column or something, then probably you don't need to go that deep. Yeah. I mean, you know, the most uh, the most accurate uh, way that you can actually investigate the way someone is put together is by examining a, a cadaver. So you can just kind of play <laughs> around with all the parts. So I wonder if uh-huh. at this point, Randy Johnson would like be inter- interested in sacrificing his left arm and shoulder just so we can uh-huh. kind of see how it's all put together because you know randy johnson's sort of the model of durability and early Mm -hmm. overuse turning into one of the greatest pitchers of all time so if we could just kind of like poke around in his body which would be easiest for us if uh, that part of his body were removed then that would be super (laughs) he still needs it to take photos in his second career as a photographer but (laughs) does he does he well i don't know i guess you can operate a camera one-handed But uh, Nolan Ryan, yeah, Nolan Ryan would be a good one because he Uh pitched forever and never really got seriously hurt. So someone like that, sure, donate your UCL to science. (laughs) All right, question from Brent, who is a Patreon supporter. If you were Rob Manfred and you were tasked with making baseball interesting to younger demographics, what would you do? I find the pace of play arguments a bit ridiculous. Yes, it's annoying to watch some of these guys redress themselves after every pitch, but a few seconds adding up to a few minutes isn't going to make the game more interesting. I'd guessed most fans were ones who played as a kid. Would you consider dropping 200 to $300 million a year, 2 million little leaguers currently at $100 plus per season, on making little league free for all kids? For a $10 billion industry, spending 2% of your revenue on nurturing the future seems like a decent investment. And I have heard Rob Manfred say that some study that MLB has done has shown that the most predictive thing about whether you're going to be a baseball fan is whether you played baseball as a kid. So Mm -hmm. there is some research that MLB believes in that supports that idea. Yeah. Uh, So I, I don't think that there's anything you can do to baseball to keep it recognizable as baseball and make it as gripping as the most frenetic moments of a football game or Mm -hmm. a basketball game baseball just doesn't move like that and i this might be wrong because i only really follow baseball and sometimes hockey but i my sense is that to really appreciate a baseball game you usually need a little more working knowledge of all of the variables than maybe another sport because seldom do you get just like a really incredible football play impossible catch like we saw a few in the fourth quarter of the super bowl i'm told or (laughs) or like a really i don't know really exciting other plays we know that there are have been super exciting baseball events and games we can just look at game seven of the most recent world series or i always think about game six of the cardinals and rangers world series in 2011 but of course that is not the average game the average game is going to be three hours long and it's going to be between the padres and the twins apparently and it's going to be like jason vargas who i'm going to put on one of those teams against colin ray who's hurt and then it's going to be 
kind of boring, but recognizable baseball. There's nothing you can do to a game like that to make it appealing to kids. And there's no amount of young baseball superstars that you can train to be interesting and funny, which would take untold amounts of money. <laughs> uh, so you can't, you know, if Mike Trout had a personality and a sense of humor, he wouldn't be every kid's favorite player. It's just not going to happen like that. You basically need... As, uh, as you just mentioned, you basically need people to play baseball, be involved with baseball at a young age in order for them to have an understanding of baseball, in order for them to then generate an appreciation of baseball. So maybe it sounds super communist and Bernie Sanders-y to be like Little League should be free and travel teams <laughs> should be free, but you should at least substantially reduce the costs of participating to whatever extent that's possible. I can't speak to what baseball is doing with its money. Uh, mm -hmm. I can I can guess that they have some money to uh, some excess, you know, yeah. <laughs> some expendable revenue. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how much, but Andrew McCutcheon has written about how that's one of the major stumbling blocks for African-Americans to get into the game from a young age. That is just yeah. so expensive that, of course, it's just like so many other parts of the baseball industry and greater industry at large. It is an obstacle for lower and lower middle class families to get their sons and daughters involved. So mm -hmm. if you could make Little League cheaper and the higher level little league teams cheaper to participate in then i would think that long term that would have the greatest effect and trying to make the actual game at the major leagues move faster it's noble i get it and there are certain things that you can cut out i like having the clock for yeah. inning breaks and all but mm -hmm. you know it's still going to be pedro baez out there and he's working a deep count against jason worth and it's six to one in the sixth <laughs> inning and it's just that's going to be baseball forever and you can't make it like, I don't know. Remember Blitz, uh -huh. the, the arcade game? Or what was yeah. it? MLB Slugfest for the baseball oh. yeah, equivalent. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you, you're never going to have MLB Slugfest. Uh, you're not going to have an XMLB, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, with, uh, with a He Hate Me equivalent. <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess the difficulty is that if you talk about investing in Little League, then you're going to see the benefits of that in what two decades or something <laughs> like that i mean i don't know i guess if a kid's in little league he'll start watching baseball more and going to games more immediately maybe but the lasting impact of that is going to be some years down the road and so you have to talk owners into giving up some of their profit right now to ensure the game's continued profitability at a point when they might no longer be alive or owning a baseball team. So I guess that's always a, a tough sell to get people to give up instant gratification for delayed or no personal gratification. But I agree that it would be in the best interest of the sport. Yeah, that's why I always take my IRA money and just invest it in lottery tickets and bubblegum. Because, you know, <laughs> what do I care about what I'm going to have when I'm 70? I could be dead when I'm 70. There's, <laughs> there's political themes here, but I guess we should stray away from them. <laughs> okay. The planet's going to kill us before we kill it. <laughs> right. All right. Question from Ron. So I'm unlucky enough to be outnumbered by Cardinals fans where I live in North Carolina. These insufferable people have insisted that a big reason the Cubs won the World Series is because they had so many recent ex-Cardinals players on the World Series <laughs> roster. <laughs> what say you? Were recent ex-Cardinals disproportionately represented on the Cubs World Series roster? If so, did they contribute disproportionately to the World Series? This I don't is even... a strange <laughs> argument. I don't even know like how much validity there is in the story if this is like second or third hand or or what i can't speak for these people he's been talking to but just this question makes me hate cardinals fans even more uh okay let me do a quick little quick little survey here 
of uh, of the Cubs. Okay, so I'm not I'll, thinking I'll, of that many off the top of my head. Like no, you I'm going to go by Baseball Reference War, descending right. order. Chris Bryant, nope, Cubs. Nope. Anthony Rizzo, <laughs> ex Padre. Okay, that could be something. Uh, John Lester, ex Red Sox, like Rizzo. Interesting. Getting a theme here. Kyle <laughs> Hendricks, ex nothing. Basically Rangers, I guess. Addison Russell, Dexter Fowler, Cardinal now. A little mm-hmm. switcheroo. Yeah. Uh, Jake Arietta, former Oriole. Ben Zobrist, former terrible minor leaguer. Uh, actually, great minor leaguer, terrible major leaguer. Javier Baez. Okay, so we've got John Lackey. Mm-hmm. We've got Hayward, who uh, sabotaged yeah, the team. Hayward, who was bad but good, but oh, I guess overall average, but you know, not well loved. Uh-huh. And what what are we missing that here? <laughs> that seems like it, right? I mean, uh, among the prominent, there almost players, has to be. I have to assume there's more, but there's not. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's not that what a terrible argument. <laughs> so That's stupid. One starter who was not close to their best starter. He was good, but <laughs> not the standout. And then we've got one hitter who was maybe their worst hitter. <laughs> That's there's it. no way. No, there's <laughs> no way. Did they mean like former Reds? Uh but that wouldn't even, I mean, that's like, no, that's, this is stupid. This is a bad argument. Cardinal, this is a bad argument. Even if there were a lot of ex-Cardinals, I don't know that this would be a good argument because no. if you take the ex-Cardinals away from the Cardinals and they do well for your team, then that makes the Cardinals look worse. But <laughs> <laughs> take the Cardinals away from last year's Cubs and they have a better right fielder and basically the same playoff rotation. So this is, I can't imagine being a Cardinals fan who's talked himself or herself into believing this to be true, but whatever, man, believe what you want, but this is stupid. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. All right. Do you want to do the Rayburn-related stat segment? Sure. Okay. So you said you wanted to talk about Rayburn, so why don't, I'll, I'll do some background. So Ryan Rayburn, last year, I did a little study, uh, cause it was also this time of year and there was nothing to do. So I thought, Hey, Ryan Rayburn post, why not? I identified that he was the most volatile hitter in the history of baseball. And what that meant was that I looked at his previous four years leading up to, I guess, last year. And I looked at all players in baseball history who had four year stretches where they batted at least 200 times in each year. I know the minimums are arbitrary, but whatever. Rayburn, between 2012 and 2015, had cleared 200 plate appearances in every year, and these these are his WRC plus marks. This is again just like OPS plus; it is 100 is average, and above is better, etc. 2012, 28, then 149, then 50, <laughs> then 154. Ryan Rayburn, the average of those, by the way, that was like a league average player over about That's 900 the thing plate that appearances. Me. Over his entire 11 year career, he has a 100 OPS plus <laughs> and a 100 WRC plus. He has been yeah. exactly a league average hitter and it also is, the most volatile hitter. <laughs> it's outstanding. So I kind of forgot about that post because whatever, it's a Ryan Raver post in the middle of February. So most volatile hitter over a four year span. And then so in 2015, he was a 154 WRC plus hitter, one of the best hitters in the game. And then Mike Petriello last week brought to my attention that, oh, by the way, last year, Rayburn with the Rockies had a 73 WRC plus. So he did it again. He got, <laughs> he went from horrible to great, to horrible, to great, to horrible again. So he remains the most volatile hitter in baseball history, this time over a five-year span, setting a minimum of 200 plate appearances. So I actually set a minimum to 150 plate appearances just to give other people more of a chance, I guess. And the way I wanted to look at this, uh, this is going to be difficult to say out loud, 
But instead of taking like a standard deviation of all those numbers, because standard deviations don't really care about the order in which you have seasons, I decided what I would do is uh, look at the total change. So for example, Rayburn between uh, 2012 and 2013, he went from a 28 to a 149 WRC plus. That is a change of 121 points. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then the next year, he went down to 50. That is a change of negative 99 points. So what I decided to do is I would take the absolute value of all the year-to-year changes and then add them up. So Rayburn, over the last five years, he's had a total change year-to-year of 405 points of WRC+. That's an average change of basically 100 points a season. 100 (laughs) points a season. So I set a table. Rayburn, with this minimum, he is the leader over any five-year stretch, baseball history, again, minimum 150 plate appearances, total change over the last five years, 405 points. In second place, Ryan Rayburn moving back a year. In third place, Ryan Rayburn moving back another year. So Rayburn actually extremely volatile over the last seven years. The nearest non-Rayburn player is Danny Valencia, who between 2011 and 2015 had a total change of 277 points. So Rayburn's average change, about 100 points a season. Valencia's average change over that stretch, 69 points a season. Okay. Nice. So that covers ground that has already been covered. I put that post up on Monday. Rayburn's super volatile. But I figured something out. So I told you that for this study, I set a minimum of 150 plate appearances because Rayburn has not exceeded 300 trips to the plate in any of these years, and he's only barely cleared 200 a few times. So I thought, okay, why don't we set a minimum of 100 plate appearances? That's what I did first. And I kind of tweaked the study because I wanted to get to Rayburn, but I figured something out. So remember, Ryan Rayburn, over the that five-year stretch, had a total change of, what was it? 405 points. 405, mm-hmm. far and away the leader. That's with a minimum of 150 plate appearances a year. I first looked at a minimum of 100 plate appearances a year, and I had a different leader. I had a different leader I'd never heard of before. Tigers fans, I believe, maybe have heard of this player, but only the older generation of Tigers fans. Gates Brown. Ever heard the name Gates Brown before? Yes, but I couldn't tell you a thing about him. Okay. Gates Brown, between 1967 and 1971, had a total change of 472 (laughs) points, which beats Rayburn by 67. I will read to you his WRC Plus marks over that span beginning in 1967. In only one of these years did Brown exceed 150 plate appearances. He was basically a pinch hitter and a role player. But anyway, 1967 to 1971. Here are Gates Brown's season-to-season WRC Plus marks. 72, 237, 50, 84, 170. I looked at uh, throughout baseball history Every single season, I set a minimum of 100 plate appearances, and I just wanted to look at the high, the best offensive years setting an embarrassingly low minimum of 100 plate appearances. Best season ever. Ted Williams, second best. Barry Bonds, third best. Babe Ruth, fourth best. Gates Brown, fifth best. <laughs> Barry Bonds, Barry Bonds, Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, Rogers Hornsby, Ted Williams, Mickey Mantle, Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, etc. Gates Brown, out of freaking nowhere, comes in with a 237. He batted 104 times in 1968. By the way, the year of the goddamn pitcher. The <laughs> hardest year to hit in recent history. And Gates Brown comes out of nowhere and slugs 685. <laughs> he, has, he is worth two wins over 100 plate appearances. That's like a Mike Trout performance. And it gets better because I looked up what was or who was Gates Brown, 
And uh, there's a little anecdote here. This is coming from the baseball reference bullpen section. Kind <laughs> I was of just their, reading this myself. version of uh, Wikipedia. Okay. Yeah. So he was a uh, blah, blah, blah. Although seldom used as a regular, Brown was a great fan favorite during his 13-year career, all spent as a member of the Detroit Tigers. He once stated to this writer... Uh, the writer of the century, that during the 1968 World Series, he was secretly eating two hot dogs on the bench when manager Mayo Smith suddenly and unexpectedly called him to pinch hit with one hot dog stuffed in his jersey. After getting a base hit, the ketchup from the hot dog bled through his jersey as he stood on base. Uh, this story, apparently, it didn't happen during the World Series because he went over one in the World Series, but it did occur on August 7th, 1968, as documented in other sources. So Gates Brown, incredible hitter, but also terrible hitter overall <laughs> fine hitter kind of i guess the lenny harris of his day but better mm-hmm. than that uh <laughs> had one of the best offensive seasons of all time setting a super low minimum uh in that season again the toughest season to hit basically ever uh gates brown had uh six home runs and four strikeouts which is unbelievable this is in 104 plate appearances he is actually the most volatile hitter of all time if you set a lower minimum the top eight entries in my list here of the most volatile five-year stretches they go through the following order gates brown gates brown ryan rayburn gates brown Ryan Rayburn, Gates Brown, and Ryan Rayburn. <laughs> so Ryan Rayburn is a free agent right now. Yes. So you could sign him not knowing which Rayburn you're going to get. So my question is, do you believe this? Do you think that there is some inherent volatility in Ryan Rayburn? Because I don't know how much our projection systems would account for this. I guess there are guys who have smaller error bars around their projections because they do the same thing every year but no one's going to project ryan rayburn to be one of the best hitters or one of the worst hitters he's going to be projected to be somewhere in the middle with aging built in and all of that but Mm -hmm. for the last several years he has not been in the middle and you could construct some reason for that maybe when ryan rayburn is in a slump he really really gets in a slump and it gets in his head maybe i don't know maybe he lets how he's doing affect him more than most players or something or maybe his mechanics are more prone to getting screwed up so if they're in good shape then he's a great hitter and if they go south then he's one of the worst hitters i don't know you Mm -hmm. could come up with reasons why this would be an innate quality of ryan rayburn but If you take all the thousands and thousands of baseball players in the sports history and you have low enough minimums so that it's 200 plate appearances every year, then you would, I suppose, expect by chance alone to get one guy who looks like this. I don't know if exactly like this would – I don't know what the odds of that would be. Probably pretty remote, but Mm -hmm. you'd you'd get someone who had this sort of pattern. So – Do you believe it? If you were signing Ryan Rayburn now for some reason, you had a need for Ryan Rayburn, would you, I don't know, price him any differently because (laughs) of this history? Okay, so the unfun answer is no, that's stupid to do. He's going to be 36 years old. The fun answer is, of course, he's got this (laughs) five-year pattern. And it gets a little better, too, because the the last five years, he's been a part-time player. But the two years before that, he was kind of a regular. He batted more than 400 times in both 2010 and 2011. I'm just going to read a couple numbers, numbers to you here. Uh, Some more WRC plus marks. First half, Ryan Rayburn, 2010, 72. Second half, 144. Okay, (laughs) fast forward. We're moving to 2011. First half, Ryan Rayburn, 59. Second half, 162. (laughs) What are you supposed to do with this? So in a, and in 2009, when he was a part-time player, 129. 
2008, 74. 2007, part-time player, 118. So if I could just kind of give you halves, he's gone good to bad to 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 good to bad. So now he's coming up on 2017. And if you look at the pattern in that way, which I know is kind of like basically numerology, he's <laughs> so due for another really good offensive year for absolutely no reason. And it's not like you can rule it out. It's not It's not like we're saying, oh, Ryan Rayburn is due for this because he's got this track record of like a few good halves. No, it's just we never know who's actually going to be good. Anybody, as evidenced by Ryan Rayburn, who is a completely average hitter for his entire career, anybody can do this over 200 plate appearances. So Rayburn or anyone else, this can this can just happen. But what's interesting to me is that Rayburn signed a two-year contract with the Indians during 2013 when he was having one of his really good years. And then with the Indians, he had a horrible year and then a really good year. And then his contract ended. And Rayburn actually wound up having to sign a minor league contract last year with the Rockies, even though he was coming off a really good year. Uh, he made the roster, and then he was bad. Uh, now he's a free agent. But if he couldn't get a good contract coming off a good year, do you think do you think he could get a better contract coming off a bad one because of this pattern? <laughs> and I know that's just me asking you the same question in reverse, but like, <laughs> what if if you had these numbers brought to your attention, which as I'm sure many front office executives don't know or couldn't care it's ryan rayburn you know he's in his <laughs> mid-30s and whatever but if you earnestly looked at him and thought and maybe you had space for a player like this on your roster would you do anything differently or would you just care about his projection yeah well the fact that he remains a free agent i guess argues against <laughs> the idea that anyone is buying this <laughs> so probably uh it's it would be fun for me to say sure give him a minor league deal have a, an invite to spring training see if he looks like good Rayburn or bad Rayburn. <laughs> but if I actually had large sums of money at stake, I probably wouldn't. Unless you could like go back and identify good Rayburn and bad Rayburn. Like if you could dig more deeply into the numbers and I don't know, look at something other than just the results. Like if you have hit FX stats going back for this this whole period, which teams do, and mm -hmm. they could identify, okay, when, when Ryan Rayburn is having a good Rayburn year, this is what he does. And he hits the ball this hard. Like, I don't know whether his process level stats changed all that much. We haven't really considered that in this discussion. So I don't know if you could look back and find a way to tell whether you have good Rayburn or bad Rayburn, and you could figure that out pretty quickly, <laughs> then sure, then he'd be worth it. I think that's maybe that's the lesson here is that teams can't tell because he's had all <laughs> these bad stretches and the teams have kept him playing. True. You know, he went from 200. Well, OK, he's played a little less, but actually. So in, in 2015, he was a good hitter. He batted 201 times. Last year, he was a bad hitter. He batted 256 times. Now, granted, <laughs> he was on a bad team, but yeah. I think teams might tell themselves, oh, we can tell. You can't tell. You look at Ryan Rayburn and he's Ryan Rayburn, whether he's a good version of the bad one. <laughs> all right. Well, I hope someone gives him a shot just to see. I hope he's got about 200 times. <laughs> okay, question from Zachariah who says, my question is this, if you were to somehow force both Mike Trout and Clayton Kershaw to another team, which teams, even with both of them on them, do you think still wouldn't have a chance of making the playoffs in 2017? So okay. if you could transplant Trout and Kershaw, and I guess we have to assume that if we're transplanting them to the worst teams, then... Probably we can just compare them to replacement level because the worst teams have replacement level players, right? And mm -hmm. so you would have to project Trout and Kershaw combined for, conservatively speaking, 
what 15 wins above replacement something like that so yeah yeah we're talking about adding at least 15 wins to a team's projection and if you look at the current worst projections the Padres are at 66 wins so add 15 to that still not a playoff team yeah pretty much you you just kind of start from the bottom and work your way up right uh Padres still bad White Sox still bad Braves, mediocre. Reds, still bad. I mean, in theory, you'd say maybe the Reds would benefit even less because they already have Billy Hamilton, who's pretty yeah, good. Right. But would you can just team. move. Yeah, you mm-hmm. can just kind of move him. Like the Diamondbacks. They have A.G. Pollock, who, by the way, people forgot about, but he's super good. Mm-hmm. But then you can just put him in left and make Yasmani Tomas disappear. So that yeah, right. doesn't really matter that much. But you basically just pull from the bottom of the standings and you go with those teams. And if you gave, if you made the Padres 15 or 16 wins better then, of course, they would have a chance. They'd be about as good as, I don't know, the Pirates or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the National League, it's so difficult because you have a clear top three teams, and then I think the the Giants and the Mets kind of stand out as well, and the Cardinals are up there too. So making the playoffs in the National League would be incredibly tough. In the American League, the picture is a little more muddled. I think you could add Trident Kershaw to like the White Sox, and then they'd have some kind of chance. They'd have a really interesting pitching staff at least. Uh, and mm-hmm. also they'd have Mike Trout. <laughs> so in the American League, I think any team could take those players and be in the race. In the National League, there's a few teams where even with them, they would be long shots. And yeah, we'll we'll begin with the Padres. Mm-hmm. Okay. And last one, I guess you already sort of answered this one via email, so maybe this will be easy. Eric Hartman says, I feel as though the topic comes up often enough without being addressed on its own. Is getting a starter out of a game due to high pitch counts good for an opposing team. Perhaps it isn't ideal for that game, but helps down the line. Maybe it's more important to do so against divisional opponents. So does having high pitch counts or does seeing a lot of pitches matter? Yeah, I I have to think that the answer is basically no. If you are an opposing team, if you're driving up pitch counts, I, I think that it doesn't have no effect, but you're basically playing three or four game series. And so the effect over such a series is pretty slim. Bullpens are super deep these days. Everybody is good for the most part in bullpens, at least on contending teams. And any effects that you have that would kind of add up, you wouldn't necessarily feel until maybe the next time you played a team. But I think that there's a lot more danger if you're the team who's having their starters pitch counts driven up because then Mm -hmm. you are feeling the effect of going to the bullpen. And I am a pretty big believer in the effect of I guess we can say bullpen taxation, which would be taxation with representation, perhaps. <laughs> but mm-hmm. they are. Uh, I think the bullpen fatigue is real. I think that anecdotally, there's a history of teams with really good bullpens that get overused and then they kind of wear down in September. I think one of the advantages, or one of the things that the Orioles have done well, is that Buck Showalter does not overuse relievers by appearance. He's been pretty good about bringing in a relatively small number of relievers still throwing a lot of innings but at least not getting people up every single day which is fatiguing contrast that with Bruce Bochy who cycles through about five relievers a plate appearance (laughs) and they are on opposite sides of the spectrum and maybe it's not a coincidence that the Giants bullpen wore down last year I don't know but I think that if you are having your starters pitch counts driven up, your bullpen will get tired and that will affect everyone. There's a cascading effect. But if you are driving up other teams' pitch counts, I think they'll be a little annoyed at you. And maybe in the last game of a four-game series, you could stand to benefit. But it would be pretty small. You'd mostly just be doing the league benefit at large. Mm-hmm. I agree. All right. So we can <laughs> wrap up there, I guess. i just let you answer the question. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it definitely 
it helps less than it once did, right? I think it, it's fair to say that because bullpens are bigger now and relievers are better relative to starters than they used to be because of how they're used and teams have a greater recognition of the fact that getting starters out of games early is not such a bad thing and even a beneficial thing at times. So in that sense, working the count can still be helpful because you you might get on base, but in terms of some secondary value to making the starter fatigued, that seems to have less value than ever, I would think. Yeah, let's. Uh, I'm just going to, I don't know where this is going to go, but I'm going to pull an average projected bullpen. So let's look at the, okay, the Rangers. We have them projected for about an average bullpen this year. So top of the bullpen, whatever, we we know they're all good. Who is there? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eighth reliever on the Rangers depth chart is Dario Alvarez. Oh, this is a good coincidence. Last year I actually wrote something about Dario Alvarez because Dario Alvarez in the minors struck out 16 batters per nine innings. So that's the Rangers eighth reliever. Uh, yeah, I don't think that there's a whole lot of benefit from getting into the Rangers bullpen because Dario Alvarez, I heard a an anecdote from uh, from Joey Votto actually last year where Votto said that he faced Dario Alvarez uh, one or two times and he said, uh, again, paraphrase quote, I don't know how any lefty ever hits this guy ever at all. So there's that from one of the most incredible hitters of our generation about a guy who might not even make the Rangers opening day bullpen roster. <laughs> okay. That went somewhere good for a just shot in the dark that you just uh, you just took. Happy coincidence. <laughs> All right, so that will do it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support, Bobby Cotavalil, Dustin McDonald, Ryan Cutchin, Gregory Zagorski, and Will Hickman. Thank you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can contact me and Jeff via email at podcastatfangrafts.com or by messaging us through Patreon. And we'll be back later this week with our next team preview episode, which will focus on the Cubs and the Brewers. Talk to you then. At times I think there are no words but these to tell what's true. And there are no truths outside the gates of Eden. Mm -hmm.